and we welcome you to the Tuesday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Very happy to be welcoming back into our studios today for his monthly visit to the program, Dr. Art Seer, Clausen Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business at Carthage College, Director of the Clausen Center, uh, author of After the Cold War, uh, a columnist whose work appears in uh, newspapers across the country and uh, and uh, around the world as well. And uh, it's always great to have uh, Professor Seer here to offer his uh, thoughtful reflection on uh, a number of different uh, Im- important uh, events and, and issues, uh, both here and abroad. Professor Seer, we welcome you back to the morning show. Well, thank you, Greg. How can I say no? You're always so gracious. <laughs> Glad to have you here. Well, thanks for um, the ego boost. Say a quick word about uh, what you have been doing this summer as we find ourselves on the brink of yet another uh, academic year at Carthage where we both teach. Well, I was able to go to Britain and Japan for short visits. Um, I work a fair amount on British politics, and there's a lot going on, and it was a good chance for some research and interviews. There is a um, conference center called Ditchley Park, which is a very elegant uh, luxurious old family home, the Hunt family, in Oxfordshire. And uh, since the late 50s, they've had conferences that grew out of the old Anglo-American special relationship, which continues, that started during World War II, as we know. And uh, when I was working at the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations, the uh, director of Ditchley, who's traditionally a senior diplomat, kind of the last posting for him or her before they retire, uh, Reg Hibbert came to see John Riley, the president of the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations, and me. Um, Their support had come from what we used to call the old Northeastern establishment Mm -hmm. that used to run foreign policy into the Vietnam War period. And uh, Hibbert was very far-sighted. He realized the country was changing, and uh, the Reagan administration represented a different approach to, in many ways to international affairs. So we developed a partnership and would have alternating conferences between uh, Ditchley and uh, usually the McCormick Tribune Foundation's um, First Division Museum in Wheaton, Illinois. And that partnership, has, as far as I know, is... Uh, um, sort of just faded over time, but uh, the Ditchley people have been nice enough to keep me on their on their list. It's a good networking opportunity. It's a good place to make connections and make Carthage a little more visible, and it's always very interesting. Hmm. And what brought you to Japan? Um, the Japan External Trade Organization is another kind of longtime partner. We're doing more following the lead of uh, uh, President Swallow, and uh, Tom Klein, our head of development, and others, and their predecessors. The college is much involved with China, as you and some, at least some of our listeners know. And uh, we've agreed I'll, I'll spend time on other parts of Asia, including South Korea and Japan. And the Japan External Trade Organization is a good partner. I've been working in, on Japan since 1979, and uh, been fortunate to do so. Um, one good friend is a man named Noburo Hatakiyama, who was at the Japan External Trade Organization, JETRO, office in Chicago. Went on to become vice minister of METI, uh, the foreign trade ministry that's orchestrated and runs the 
very successful Japanese export drive and increasingly investment drive since World War II. Uh, he's now in his 80s, and uh, I want to call on him what might be one last time, which is always mm -hmm. important, and particularly important in that part of the world. Uh, he was good enough to organize a visit uh, to Japan back in the 1990s for me and one of my sons, which was very beneficial mm -hmm. in terms of, uh, and has continued to pay dividends. Very good. Glad you've had some interesting well, trips thanks this, for asking. this, this yeah. summer. So there's a lot to uh, talk about, and probably at the top of the list, I should think, uh, is the continuing tensions between the United States and China in what uh, is, at least in some respects, feeling <coughs> like uh, a trade war and certainly being depicted as uh, a trade war in terms of the, uh, the uh, trade-off of escalating tariffs between the two nations. And, well, it's and certainly a headline and a media war, that's for sure. Right. So what do you see as the significance? I mean, as my question sort of implied, there is the possibility that none of this matters as much as the headlines might suggest, and others would say this matters a lot. And yeah. if this is not resolved, we could be heading headed for something very serious. So what's well, your assessment? Well, my assessment is you should take a look beyond the headlines and see what's going on in terms of not only actual trade, but also um, stock markets and increasingly other investment markets around the world. Um, the Great Depression is the specter that uh, rightly haunts anybody who's serious about these matters, and you can trace a very direct and dramatic correlation between the... Um, uh, con Congress voting the Smoot-Hawley tariff in the early 1930s, a really extreme protectionist move when the world was already in the Great Depression, and the decline of the U.S. stock market initially in 1929 and then into the 30s. And in terms of the actual debate and voting on Smoot-Hawley, um, it's quite striking the impact it had on Wall Street. There were other factors involved, but so far, of course, the markets haven't been particularly directly affected. Uh, a small blip becomes giant headlines and uh, very intense discussion on television and radio. But in point of fact, take a look at the actual numbers, and so far, we're not seeing a dramatic impact. One thing that's not much discussed is tariff is a tax and constitutionally, of course, the Congress imposes taxes. The Congress is also supposed to declare war. We haven't declared war since uh, the day after Pearl Harbor in this country. And then after Germany and Italy declared war on us, we declared war on them way back in December 1941. Likewise, since the early 1960s, on international matters especially, Congress has delegated this power increasingly to the executive. And my guess is can see it already in the debate about um, one of the president's statements and tweets and declarations about uh, imposing new barriers on Mexico. Congress did collectively say, wait a minute, and that faded. And my, my own thinking is that there'll be a lot more wait a minutes from Congress. Uh, the president, I believe, only has limited authority in terms of imposing um, uh, ter any kind of significant tariffs. He, I believe it's 150 days or so, and if it's going to become permanent, Congress has to really act if it's a major change from existing legislation. 
So beyond the headlines, uh, the president moves from one interest to another, one statement to another, and he's obvious. You don't have to be some sort of genius political scientist to see his main interest is in staying in the center of the news and satisfying his base and causing disruption, frankly. Uh, be attentive to the longer term. Are the uh, constant moves that he's making really making a long-term difference? So that's my best thinking on the subject. I'm not a, uh, an international trade expert. I always appreciate you asking. Right. Uh, you, you touched on one of the questions I also had beyond whether or not these <coughs> tariff gestures from us and retaliatory tariff gestures from China, yeah. uh, how much those in fact matter. And, and, and I think what you're characterizing, that you're characterizing them as relatively temporary measures. Yeah, and so far they haven't had a great significance. Now, you know, when you've got a job, as you and I fortunately do, it's easy to pontificate, and um, there are disruptive impacts. Right. I mean, and if you, the if farm community, farming community, is an enormously productive and talented population, and we traditionally respect them rightly. There's been a lot of disruption in the farming community, but I have done some work on that, including talking to some people who are directly involved in farming and who study that community. And so far, we don't have, unlike the Great Depression, again, we don't have a lot of farm failures in the U.S. yet. <laughs> okay. I, I I hope you're right about that. I mean, no. I, I've well, seen. Well, you may have contrary evidence. Well, I've seen headlines that indicate that, for instance, 2019 is uh, the the worst year in recent history for uh, either either farm failures or bankruptcies. I don't remember exactly how that was characterized, mm -hmm. but it suggested actually a, a a pretty serious situation at least here in Wisconsin. But I don't know if that's true across the board. Um, in terms of farms across the country and farmers across the country. Interesting. But, well, maybe we should both study it further and talk again on the right. subject. Uh, but I did want to ask you about also beyond the significance of these gestures involving tariffs, also the significance of the, the president and the fact that his attitude towards China, the rhetoric he chooses about China, has, has waffled yeah. drastically. And uh, in a really interesting uh, New York Times article today, uh, kind of exploring this, uh, apparently in, in response to a question about that, he basically said, this is the way I negotiate. This is the way I've always uh, negotiated. And the article kind of goes on to say that, uh, that, that, that that may be true when it comes to when you are, you are, making a, you are negotiating some kind of real estate deal, uh, it, it might it might mean something else or have far different ramifications when we're not talking about those kind of negotiations, but rather mm -hmm. a negotiation between nations in which there are all kinds of ancillary effects uh, from the way those negotiations are carried out. But I thought that was a really just intriguing question about uh, – are, are, are those the same kind of negotiations, and do the same basic rules apply, or are we talking about a really different kind of negotiation? Uh, so I don't know what your, your thoughts are on that. Well, the, it's very important for the president to see himself and be seen as a successful business person. In point of fact, the enormous family for, fortune was made by his father, mainly but not exclusively in real estate. And um, his success professionally outside of national politics has been in show business, which is a business to be sure, but one in which the uh, 
to put it politely, the style of negotiation, the culture, the atmosphere is, is different from just about any other business. There really is no business like show business. <laughs> he has uh, published two books, uh, The Art of the Deal and Less Visible, The Art of the Comeback. I actually haven't seriously read either one, but uh, I've read about them and The Art of the Comeback especially. Uh, if you're interested in his approach to business and negotiation, my understanding is that's very worthwhile. And since we're serious people talking to serious people, talking li being listened to by serious people, why otherwise would you turn <laughs> into this program? Uh, that would be my be my best advice. My own personal point of view and professional point of view is that traditional diplomacy behind cold closed doors, especially where complicated matters like trade or arms control are concerned, even more than other important things like human rights. It's very important to conduct negotiations privately behind closed doors in a serious and disciplined manner where you don't go from one topic to the next and mm -hmm. don't constantly issue press releases. That's the way to actually get things done. And those kind of negotiations do continue mm. among governments at the working level. And you've got to look beyond the headlines and the tweets to see what's actually going on. And that's worth serious people's everybody's attention mm. and serious people are more likely to pay attention to that but that's my best best advice the you know the basic rules of the game just like the basic rules of life don't change right very good i hope that's clear and not too preachy <laughs> uh, but take a look at what professional um, diplomats civil servants as well as foreign service officers are doing and what results in terms of tangible agreements the uh, I mentioned Mexico. The um, update of NAFTA to me is a good example of that, and I believe it's coming up for debate in Congress right now. That's a good source of self-discipline. Pay attention to that. Mm -hmm. uh, another uh, headline that I think is is worth our talking about because I think it raises some really intriguing questions uh, is. The, this serious situation uh, in the rainforests of Brazil, ah. where there are uh, where there are fires <coughs> burning, and there is some real concern about whether or not uh, the government of Brazil uh, is in a position to be properly and effectively safeguarding this really vital resource, and the fact that what happens there. Uh, I mean, if this was to be even more out of control and become even more widespread, we're talking about the potential of something that could literally affect the planet. Mm -hmm. And uh, But those rainforests, in, in a sense, it sort of feels like they belong to all of us on a sort of a planetary scale, but in fact they are on Brazilian territory. And uh, it is first and foremost uh, for the Brazilians to... To, to, to handle this uh, really scary situation. But I'm intrigued not only about sort of the uh, climatological uh, effects and impacts of this, but beyond that, just sort of the political dimensions of a situation like this where something is happening and it potentially affects the entire planet and yet uh, the sovereignty of Brazil is, is uh, without question. Um, have you followed events at all in Brazil? Is, can you tell us anything about the, what seems to be kind of a, a kind of a turbulent political situation there? And uh, if you have any thoughts about uh, the, the, these headlines and this situation right now, well, you mentioned the New York Times. It's a source I don't um, 
I don't read it as carefully as some other sources, but on environmental matters, I think their coverage is extremely good. And they've had some very good articles, including a very current one by Manuela Andrioni and Ernesto Londono on the Brazilian rainforest um, from yesterday. Uh, lots of forces come into play, po populism, uh, resentment of rich industrial nations, and President Bolsonaro is, I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly, is very much feeding populism, this kind of pop populist sentiment. And uh, that's not the only country you find populists getting <laughs> elected to high public office, is it? But there's a rich tradition, I think, in Latin America of that. Um, as far as I know, and the good news is he's not targeting uh, Uncle Sam, the Yankees, the usual villain, namely mm. the United States of America. Uh, often populist politicians south of our border, most dramatically Fidel Castro, and most significantly starting in 1959 and going on until just recently. Um, when President Obama very rightly and wisely was able to reopen diplomatic relations to a degree with Cuba, um, he hasn't been targeting the U.S., the G7 offered $20 million of re emergency relief aid for these tremendous fires, a lot of which are set by humans. There's good evidence that this is not a natural phenomenon or not random. Right. People who want to make money are burning these forests so they can um, uh, turn it into more productive agricultural activity and development activity, as I understand the story. Yeah. Uh, and... The president of Brazil dismissed that as a drop in the bucket in pure politics. Uh, the good news is an international network, uh, what we call international regimes in the trade, things like the G7, the G20, um, the EU, NAFTA, the, Europe, uh, the um, UN globally. Um, the world is now more or less regulated by fairly effective international organizations, and it's not just nation states. Secondly, um, a very popular uh, and in some ways very positive uh, predecessor to the current president of Brazil is now in prison. There seems to be steady growth of the rule of law hmm. in Latin American nations. Into the 19th century, um, in the Americas, the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere were pretty similar in terms of development. Um, Argentina was often referred to. The Economist in an early, um, early in the 1900s had a very long article, the very serious London Weekly, um, on how Argentina is the United States of the Southern Hemisphere. Hmm. Rapidly growing industry, a large agricultural sector, a lot of arable land, a large indigenous population, very diverse population. It include, includes English people to be sure, which the economist of course praised, but also a large German population even then. The diversity and promise of Argentina is very much like the United States. That of course would be a joke today, and is after decades and decades of fascism, militarism, sheer corruption, and protectionism. Hmm. And protectionism. Argentina, like other countries in South America, uh, especially given the scourge of fascism, which wasn't limited to Germany and Italy and, and Japan, but was a big trend in the 20th century. Fortunately, it's faded. Um, no one talks that way anymore. 
the fact that not only Latin American countries but African countries are currently enjoying great growth and uh, tremendous foreign investment across the board, I think, is one counter to these kinds of terrible activities and one thing that, um, uh, by its nature, if you're going to have open commerce, it encourages the rule of law. I believe our success in North America has to do with the fact that it was a more commercial country, Great Britain, that became dominant in North America, a very mercantilist power, Spain, and also Portugal, for a long period of time dominated Latin America. This has nothing to do with racism. This has nothing to do with nationalism. It has to do with the objective fact that market economics do encourage the rule of law. Secondly, mm -hmm. natural disasters are horrible and horrific and literally painful if you're in the path of a fire or a flood or a hurricane or a volcanic eruption. However, um, we have tremendous natural capacity, speaking of the earth, not of human beings per se. Whatever people might do and whatever nature might, might do, we do have tremendous recuperative capacities. One of the most important facts about World War II was throughout, throughout most, of the, yeah, most of the war in the uh, Atlantic theater, there was, th there was the equivalent of one supertanker spill every week. Mm. German U-boats, uh, utterly lethal and quite dominant in the North and Central Atlantic into 1943. They were wreaking havoc with shipping. Uh, these men and women who took these transport ships were and troop ships across the Atlantic, back and forth, they were literally risking their life until about halfway through World War II. One super tanker spill per week. Wow. Think of how, uh, but they, we recovered very quickly. Uh, the recuperative powers of nature are tremendous. So that kind of thing I think is important to keep in mind given the horrific developments in the Amazon. Mm. Yeah, I hope you are right about that. Well, I hope I'm not too much of a Pollyanna, but given <laughs> the natural, by nature, the news, especially contemporary headline uh, tabloid news from my point of view, it's really important to be balanced. Yeah. Fair and balanced. Yeah. As no, they I say on Fox News. Right. Uh, much, much more readily said than done. Sure. Well, and in the case of, you know, when one thinks about the kind of trees that are in the rainforest. Of course. And that when those burn down, uh, yes, something regenerates, but how long does it take for, for us to have trees again, like those that we are losing at an alarming rate? I think yeah. that's the, it's, uh, some things are easier to regenerate to recover from than well, others. Well, of course. Yeah. So. No, I don't minimize that at all, right, but right. the recuperative power, you know, um, uh, we're thinking in terms more of a century, right. not a week, sure. but the recuperative powers of nature are tremendous. Right. And you're right that that tends not to be an element in the coverage of events like this at all. Well, of course I mean, not. Right. Yeah, it's the end of the world and things are horrible all the time. Right. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Art Seer. <laughs> Clausen, Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business at, at Carthage, and I'm really glad to have him here for his uh, monthly visit uh, to the program. By the way, I neglected to ask you uh, before we went on the air, but I wondered if you had any reaction to uh, the announcement yesterday out of Oklahoma <coughs> that, uh, that uh, the, the, the drug manufacturer Johnson & Johnson 
uh, is being asked to pay, I think, $572 million yeah. uh, in a case brought by the state of Oklahoma in, in, in a case very directly related to the opioid crisis, which uh, I think <laughs> deserves all the headlines that it has. I mean, yeah. it's a tremendous Well, that's good news, actually. Uh, well, right. It's a but horrible I mean, human tragedy, of, but good of course. news. No. But I mean, the, the, I, I think this is a case in which uh, we maybe don't have enough headlines, I mean, talking about the seriousness of this of this crisis. Just wondered if you had a reaction to yesterday's announcement and maybe just in general to this opioid crisis with which we're contending right now. Um, I certainly applaud the decision, and I think all Americans should do so. Um, Johnson & Johnson's lead lawyer, um, a woman, which is, you know, notice how much these days when it's a really ugly corporate or other case, the defendant, especially a rich defendant, uh, has the wit to put a woman out in front. Naturally positive, uh, naturally a sympathetic figure, uh, by definition counter to the usual um, negative and scary image of a corporate lawyer. I think corporate greed is a phenomenon that's very real, and uh, it's unavoidable, and I think Johnson & Johnson is very guilty, and we'll see if they win on appeal. Uh, the lawyer said, she said very dramatically, I listened on public radio this morning, that this is a threat to the American Constitution. Well, I'm confident the Constitution will survive. I also am confident Johnson & Johnson will survive. Uh, they're one of the few corporations that didn't settle in order to avoid headlines on this. Mm -hmm. They're not the only corporation that was involved in this, I believe, immoral uh, as well as illegal exploitation of vulnerable people. Uh, it's the price of the marketplace. In my lifetime, I'd be interested in your view of the subject, uh, anti-business sentiment, hostility to business, was um, very much part of American public life uh, through the 1960s. And in the last quarter century or so, that's changed. Historically, Americans are very pro-business. The attitude, the business... Of America, the business of America is business, is strongly rooted, and the degree to which, since the 60s, the sort of basic hostility to big business that became um, almost pervasive during the Great Depression and was used by politicians through the 60s uh, has faded, and it's it's an interesting phenomenon to think mm -hmm. about. And I think you're right. I I, I would agree that that there has been uh, there has been a shift. Uh, and Back to normalcy, right? To right. Another Republican phrase from the twenties. <laughs> Absolutely. But that—that's to me, that's very positive. Um, the typical corporation is not the way, does not behave the way Johnson and Johnson behaved. And that's not just my opinion. They have been convicted uh, right. in court more than once. Um, the average person does better in a market economy. It's not that some people get rich, because some people always get rich uh, throughout history, but workers do well when things are open and competitive, and it's extremely important to prosecute and prosecute effectively those who are guilty among the outliers. But the fading of anti-business sentiment is really quite striking. I think John Kennedy was the last president who was able effectively to exploit this feeling and... Uh, some powerful evidence is, is provided by Dwight Eisenhower, who liked the company of big businessmen, but was very, very careful not to appear in public with them, hmm. at least not much. Yeah. 
I wanted to uh, make sure that we get to talk about three of your most recent columns, all three of which I found really, really interesting, including one that is around a topic that we've talked about uh, in, in several of your most recent visits, and with good reason, because it's significant, namely Britain and Brexit. And uh, specifically what you wrote about, though, in this more recent column was was about Northern Ireland and Britain and Ireland and Northern Ireland and uh, uh, some of the new tensions that have sprung up there and uh, and the potential for uh, for the situation to get even more difficult uh, should Brexit go forward. Uh, just explain to our listeners, if you would, although I know it's a complicated picture of of that complicated <laughs> relationship between Britain and Ireland and Northern Ireland and why it's even more complicated now than it used to be. Well, it's, it's often complicated when I talk about that. I'm mindful uh, or other things. Uh, Northern Ireland is a great success story for British uh, diplomacy, British political leadership, and especially the uh, British military, in my view, and their capacity to handle what's referred to as low-intensity conflict, guerrilla warfare, terrorism. They tend to blend together in reality. Um, Northern Ireland is the Protestant-majority province. Um, that uh, is part of the wider United Kingdom. It's part of the British Isles. In 1921, after decades, centuries of very violent, often very ugly and brutal civil unrest and violence and warfare in Ireland, um, the British finally gave Ireland their independence, but quite responsibly, they retained control of this Protestant enclave in uh, the Irish island of, of Ireland that is overwhelmingly Catholic. Um, basically, it was stable and peaceful, more or less, uh, through the 1960s. And then in 1969-70, a radical wing of the Irish Republican Army, the revolutionary group, the terrorist group, depending on your point of view, that had been pressing the revolution before independence, they reemerged. And... Um, there, were, there was ongoing violence, not only in Ulster, but in London and other parts of Britain um, and in Ireland. The Unionists in Northern Ireland, both sides were quite fanatical and could be quite lethal. Uh, the, uh, in fairness to the Irish, the uh, Unionists in Northern Ireland did carry out bombings and killings in wider Ireland. Uh, the British used a controversial but I believe highly effective um, senior officer named Kitson, I think it's Frank Kitson, who had been involved in insurrections of various kinds throughout the empire, um, including I think the Mau Mau insurgency in Kenya and in Malaya in the 50s and 60s. And the British Army deserves a lot of credit for self-discipline, for working closely with Unionist forces to suppress the violence, including targeting and killing individuals. Uh, it, it was a war, after all. And from my point of view, they were extremely careful to avoid use of heavy firepower or bringing in very large conventional military forces which would have been counterproductive in Ulster. John Major, 
uh, Margaret Thatcher's conservative successor, who doesn't get much credit, and Tony Blair, the longtime Labor Prime Minister, who gets a lot of credit and is always anxious to seize credit. He's kind of a Bill, British Bill Clinton. He's always there. If you <laughs> open the door, there he is. Um, between the two of them, they worked out a diplomatic settlement at the end of the 90s that has held. Hmm. Brexit, the short, the strange shorthand term for leaving the European Union, um, both Ireland and Britain are part of the EU, so goods and services and people freely flow across the border of Ireland and Northern Ireland. Uh, the agony of Theresa May as Prime Minister was a function of the fact that she was Theresa May and the way she went about things. But she was, she was to her credit, very careful to, go to negotiate a special deal whereby uh, the border with Ireland and Northern Ireland would remain open. Uh, if, no matter what. Yeah. Uh, a after Britain leaves. That was part of the Brexit deal that she worked out. Boris Johnson, um, the wild, crazy new prime minister and head of the Conservative Party, her successor, he's been quite blunt and adamant that, no, this will not last and we're rejecting it. So we'll see what happens. My that, guess, that special deal, you mean? Yeah. Involving uh, the backstop. The yeah. Uh, we'll see. The British have a way of working things out, referred to as muddling through. <laughs> And I hope and have faith, and I'm a true believer, I think they'll work through this Brexit insanity. But it has the potential of re-sparking violence on both sides in Northern Ireland, not just the IRA, but diehard unionists. Uh, when I was in Britain, I happened to see a video on YouTube about, uh, uh, produced by the British government, I'm quite sure, about how one road, six miles, in Ulster goes back and forth across the border six times. So you're going to have border checks at each of that. It's a rural area, Whoa. but there's a fair amount of traffic. Um, getting back to markets and prosperity and the average person doing well, Ulster historically is very, very poor. They've actually, over the last two decades, the average um, resident of Northern Ireland, Catholic or Protestant, is doing much better. That's the ace in the hole for the government. Uh, and I, I hope that sanity and stability will uh, somehow reemerge in London. Hmm. But Northern Ireland could potentially reemerge in, um, in violence. My, uh, my oldest son, David, and I went to uh, uh, London for about a week after he finished high school in uh, uh, quite a while ago now, in the 90s. And uh, we stayed at the Carlton Club because... Um, I, I'm a member of the Cosmos Club in Washington, and they have reciprocal memberships, and these places are very interesting. But they're also extremely inexpensive, usually, to stay there. So we stayed at the Carlton Club and had a great time. But the day after we left, um, the IRA bombed the Carlton Club. And it was, you know, when you just miss uh, a violent incident, one that might have killed one of your children, that's uh, very thought-provoking, and it's cer certainly brought home to both of us how serious the situation was in Britain then, even though uh, we had a great week. But thank God it just missed us. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Don't re I don't remember hearing that story before. That is really something. So, yeah. Yes, I join you in being thankful. Well, it's not one I want to, you know, yeah. but it, it is congruent with this discussion. And yeah. uh, the British government overall, every day is a new day. Um, but not so much in that country. And they do have a great track record, I believe, 
of um, maintaining overall political stability and responsibility and um, being smart in their use of military force. Since the Civil War, I believe the American default position has been uh, preserve our lives as much as we can. Can't argue with that, but also arti more artillery is better. Mm. More bombs are better. You know, more firepower is uh, more likely to get you success. I believe our British friends, and we're lucky they are our friends, have been smarter about that. Mm. Uh, that's not a very popular point of view in some circles today, so I, I do believe it's important to reiterate it. Mm. We're lucky there really is a special relationship. Right, and it'll be really interesting to see what transpires in the next uh, couple of months. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Right. I appreciated so much. In fact, I'm not sure I've ever enjoyed uh, a column of yours more than I enjoyed the column uh, uh, that was headlined "Intelligence versus Political Posturing." Uh, well, I just wish more people agreed with you. Yeah, or as no, it perceptive was, as you are, right? No, it, it was really, <laughs> really well written about the. Well, the, you, why don't you tell us about it? <laughs> so, I mean, it's 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 a it's a column about the uh, the importance of discretion when it comes to matters of intelligence and counterintelligence, and the fact that uh, when you uh, are going to appoint somebody to, for instance, be the director of of our of our national intelligence efforts, you. Don't want something, someone who's necessarily a, a bellicose blabbermouth. You want somebody who knows how no, to. No, you don't want a bellicose blabbermouth. Yeah. We, right. we have enough of that right. in Washington. Yeah, well, you <laughs> write this at one point. You write intelligence work demands discretion along with skill. Silence is essential, can be golden, and clearly is especially hard to find in today's tweet happy Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. And it just, uh, you know, as I read those words and I realized, yes, I mean, in a sense, uh, you would be hard-pressed to find anybody in sort of that whole Washington, D.C. circuit or scene uh, that really has what it takes to excel in this arena of, of, of intelligence. I mean, I think it's really important. Well, at the same time, there are lots of dedicated professionals. I'm not in any way disagreeing with your... Um, uh, your praise, I really appreciate it. But one of the interesting things about uh, CIA is the agency regularly gets over 100,000 job applications per year, hmm. at least, in a minimum. I don't think anybody knows for sure on the outside, um, but they've always been very, very popular as a place to work. And a lot of people are romantic and watch too many movies and... Uh, <laughs> Wouldn't, wouldn't be a good uh, uh, fit for that agency or any other. But there are a lot of people who are really interested in public service, and there are a lot of professionals. At the end of the article column, I quoted President Eisenhower. I love this. With the cornerstone of Langley, um, building the big headquarters in Virginia, which is, I think I used a picture of, um, of an air photo of Langley to illustrate the um, column on, on my blog. The... Uh, um, speech he made, as usual, was just brilliant and right on point, not particularly dramatic. Um, and he didn't want to be the center of media attention in that sense. But he p pointed out quite dramatically, your, su your successes will never be known, your failures will never be forgotten, and you'll constantly be reminded of them, but your role is essential. And throughout his military career, 
the evidence is undeniable. He was obsessed with intelligence, especially during World War II, but also the Cold War. Eisenhower uh, was constantly focused on going beyond the um, conventional wisdom. Professor Joe Nye at Harvard University, uh, who spent his career in academia, but also served in the um, uh, Clinton administration uh, and had a role in the Obama administration. Uh, he chaired the National Intelligence Advisory Board. Uh, he wrote quite recently. There are lots of other columnists in the world, and Joe is really worth reading, that the um, natural tendency to look for the evidence that confirms your prejudices is something we all do. Hmm. Um, I think Bush and company, Bush uh, the Younger, would have invaded Iraq in any case. But the whole intelligence community was persuaded by false information concerning weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. The Kennedy administration, everyone at the top, fooled themselves that the Soviets would never introduce missiles in Cuba. Um, the you know, history is full of these stories, and it, it means that Ike was absolutely right to be obsessed. And look for leaders who have um, disagreeable aides around them, hmm. the no man or no woman, everybody with authority, you need somebody who's going to tell you, no, you're wrong, I've got a different point of view. Eisenhower, and be willing to listen to them. Exactly. Uh, FDR and Churchill, quite rightly. Um, those who know history respect them for being exactly that way, however difficult they might be, however calculating and ruthless FDR, however temperamental Churchill, they were uh, great leaders in part because they were focused on the importance of hard information and the necessity of having diversity of points of view. Mm -hmm. We're always preaching and praising diversity in academia today, as usual in human endeavors. Uh, one person's inclusiveness uh, automatically excludes people that we find ugly or uh, beyond the pale, or you know, in every aspect of life, seek out people who have a different, a truly different point of view, not just the uh, inclusiveness du jour. Right. Yeah. That that idea of fighting against what I think is often called confirmation bias. Yeah. In which we seek out the information. That's a good that, term. Yeah. Currently that, a popular that, term. Yeah. That confirms what we already hold to be true. Absolutely, and we all do it. Yeah. The uh, you you. You kind of touched on a bit of that Eisenhower quote that I absolutely loved at that at that uh, oh, cornerstone laying in 1959. So that would be uh, that would be 60 years ago uh, this year, and uh, I, I, in, in part of his remarks, he said that when you're in the work that you do at a, at a place like, for instance, the CIA, he said, success cannot be advertised, failure cannot be explained. Mm -hmm. And when you think about how, in fact, uh, a lot of people go around uh, advertising their successes and then trying to explain their failures, I mean, uh, that just doesn't work all that well in the realm of intelligence. Yes. Um, one of the crucial figures in World War II was William Donovan, Wild Bill Donovan, um, a decorated combat veteran of World War I, a very irreverent, independent person, uh, an unsuccessful uh, successful lawyer. Uh, an unsuccessful politician in New York, uh, partly because he was Irish and a Republican uh, at a time when that ethnic group was very much in the Democratic Party. Um, immigrant groups tended to gravitate to the Democrats then and now. Uh, Roosevelt picked him as special emissary to deal with the British. 
Um, Bill Denovan, uh, germane to today's life, not just in academia, he never saw himself as a victim. He could have. Uh, he was constantly dealing with these wasps who, in politics, in law, in government, especially in foreign policy, who would look down on an Irishman. I think Roosevelt picked him partly because Bill Donovan never saw himself as beleaguered, never saw himself as underprivileged, and by nature, this wild Irishman had an independent point of view. Uh, if you go into Langley, there is a very elegant, very impressive painting of Donovan uh, at the entrance. FDR put him in charge of the OSS, um, the um, predecessor to CIA. And when Donovan was dying, about the same time that uh, Langley was being built, Eisenhower made a point of going to the hospital and spending a great deal of time with him. Uh, bec he respected him a lot, as did anybody who actually worked with him, difficult though he might be sometimes. Uh, but he respected him a lot, but it also personified the fact that Ike really, really uh, put at the top accurate information, accurate intelligence. It was crucial in winning a war that we could have lost and in maintaining uh, basic stability and order during the height of the Cold War. Very good. Well, I hope it's clear. It's a very yeah. important point. Yeah. I really appreciate yeah. you bringing it up. Absolutely. And I wish we had time. All we can say is you also wrote recently about the film Apocalypse Now, which has just been released in a special final cut in the 40th anniversary of its original release. And uh, your column about that touches on a whole lot of important matters, including bureaucratic self-protection, which kind of speaks to what we were just talking about. Yeah. But we will have to talk about that another day. The, the clock is the tyrant here, and uh, our time is up. But I'm so glad for uh, all we did have time to talk about today uh, uh, in this morning show visit uh, with you, Dr. Art Sear, Clausen Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business at Carthage, Director of the Clausen Center. Uh, it's always a privilege to have you here on the morning show. Well, it's always a tonic to meet with you, sir. Thank you for being here. We look forward to seeing you in September.